pero embracing God's universe. So, as you know, we always start with a with a uh, modern day issue. What is this modern day issue of that we're going to learn now from this mystical discourse? And the modern day issue is that some people live a life of constant war, never being in peace, neither with themselves, with others, nor with the universe. This exists also among the religious, who may feel that the universe at its very core is fighting against them being religious. Whether it be not working on Shabbat, keeping kosher, respecting modesty boundaries, or simply that the entire law of attraction backfires on them attracting nothing but antagonism. Now, this life of war can stem from the belief that the physical world is the domain of the devil, or it could be based on the belief of what mankind has turned this world into. The core of this belief may also be based on a word often used when something goes wrong. And that word is kapara. Kapara means atonement. Now, the foundation of this belief is that we have done bad in our lives. And every and any form of suffering is but an atonement for our wrongdoing, which is ultimately a kindness from God that God is cleansing us in this world with bearable suffering. Now, I, I am not going to argue with any of these beliefs at the moment. Rather, I just want to point out that each and every one of these beliefs drive at it's me against the universe. And sometimes some may say it's God and me against the universe. Be it as it may be, the outcome here is that the individual is not at peace with the universe. Now, for some, it is that God is not at peace with the universe, and it is our job to bring the universe into submission to God, creating or restoring peace between God and the universe. Now, even those who are not at peace with the universe may believe that there are those outstanding in religion or in decency that have found peace with the universe. Whether it may be some tzaddik, righteous person like King Solomon, or whether it be Lahabdul Mahatama Gandhi or the Dalai Lama, either way, this being at peace with the universe is reserved for the chosen few and not for you and I. That is a belief. Now, in this lecture, lecture, we are going to explore the ultimate universal peace that lies at the very core of the universe's existence and how this becomes available to everyone. This lecture is based primarily on a Hasidic discourse, a mimer the Rebbe delivered on this Shabbat in 1969, exploring the mystical secrets behind the splitting of the Sea of Reeds. Now, Let's have some introductions. Introduction number one. In this week's Torah portion, we read the miracle of how the Jewish people were completely freed from Egyptian slavery with the splitting of the Sea of Reeds, through which the Jewish people crossed, and then when the Egyptians followed, the sea returned to its original strength, closing the split and eradicating the Egyptian army once and for all. It's only when the Sea of Reeds spit out the Egyptian army that the Jewish people finally knew that they were safe. Now the verse states, and I quote, 
and the sea returned at dawn to its strength. Our sages explained the word to its strength. Why would it say to its strength? The strength of the sea didn't weaken. It didn't weaken at all. Rather, the nature of fluidity and flow changed. So why does the, the verse state that it returned to its strength? Now, the Hebrew word used for its strength is le'etano, or in Ashkenazi, le'etanoi, which, which has the same letters as the word litnai, which means to its condition. What does it mean, a condition? Tanai means that you made a condition with someone or something. So, why, why does the verse say, use the, the sages say, why does the verse use the word le'etano to actually hint to us that it's le'etanai? And it explains that when God created the sea, God made a condition with it that when the time comes, it will split for the Jewish people. The Baal Shem Tov explains that this means, and if the sea will not split, there will not exist the seas and it will not have been created at this place for it will be nullified from existence, end quote. We will soon see what the Baal Shem Tov is saying. So the Baal Shem Tov is saying that this isn't just a plain condition, but rather if the condition is not met, the condition is at the core, at the DNA of the existence of the seas, that if the sea will not split, it will be reverted back to north as it was never created. Now, let's see another introduction. There is the Word of God and the will of God. And the Baal Shem Tov explains why the sages in, Talm, in the Talmud and Brachot, it says that the sages are called performers of the will of God and not performers of the Word of God. Now, if it would have said the Word of God, this would have coincided well with the verse in Psalms, which says, who perform his word, to hearken to his voice of his to the voice of his word. So why in the verse does it refer to us as the righteous, as heeding the word of God, while the Talmud says, the will of God. Now to understand this, the Baal Shem Tov gives a metaphor. What is the metaphor? A father shares with his son a Torah thought. The father came up with a Torah thought and he shares with his son the Torah thought. Now, what happens is that the son, because of his sharpness and power of extrapolation, he disproves his father's Torah thought. Now, what happens? In this instance, the father is pleased with his son, with great pleasure and with great joy for what the son just did. He disproved his father's words of Torah, his father's Torah thought. Why? For this is the will of the Father, more than if the Son would have just remained silent and have agreed with Him. Thus, while the Son is not adhering to the words of His Father, He actually disproves the words of His Father. However, the Son is doing the will of His Father, for this gives His Father the greatest joy in seeing the superior brilliance and, and power of Torah study of His Son. So too it is with God and the righteous. As our sages in the Talmud say upon the verse in Job, the Job verse says, you will make a decision and it will be accomplished for you. Our sages extrapolate that the holy blessed be he decrees and the righteous nullify 
God's decree through prayers or Torah study. Another introduction, the split river. Another but less known story, everyone knows the story of the splitting of sea, it's in the five books of Moses, but a less known story of a splitting of water is told by our sages in the Talmud and Tractic Chulin concerning Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair. Now, Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair, just for those of you who know, he was the father-in-law of the great Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, who composed the Zohar. Now, Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair was traveling with those who accompanied him to pay and redeem a Jew who was being held captive. He was coming with ransom to save a Jew who was being held captive when he came across the Gnai River. That's the name of the river, the Gnai River. And could not continue on his journey to fulfill the mitzvah of Pidyon Shvuim, redeeming captives. Rapimchus ben Yorir then spoke to the river and he said, Split your waters, for I am on the way on my way to do a mitzvah. Now the river, or you may say the ministering angel of the river, answered, I too am going to fulfill the wish of my creator, who has created who has commanded and said in Ecclesiastics and all rivers flow into the sea. It's my job to flow, and you're asking me to stop. Now you, it is a doubt if you will actually do or not do the mitzvah. Maybe he won't accept your ransom, so the whole trip was for naught. But I will definitely be successful in my flowing into the sea. That was the river's answer to Rabbi Pinchas ben You're doing the word of God, but you're doubtful whether you could or can succeed. I am doing the word of God, and I will definitely succeed. So now Rabbi Pinchas ben answers back the river. If you do not split your waters from me, I will decree upon you that no waters shall pass through you forever. Le'olam. Now, the river split for Rabbi Pinchas ben and his entourage. This is the story as it's told in the Talmud. The Baal Shem Tov explains that this splitting of the river was like the concept of the splitting of the Sea of Reeds. And then the Baal Shem Tov concludes, And all who are called a son to the Holy One, blessed be he, can perform, create, change the will of God. And who is this who is called the Son of God? He who guards his covenant, which means his circumcision from deviant sexual acts who is called in the book of Proverbs, but the righteous is the foundation of the world. Sadiq Yisod Olam. Now the secret of the connection with this word is that according to Kabbalah, the attribute of foundation refers to the male reproductive organ, the holy circumcision sign, Ot Brit Kodesh. And thus the verse in Proverbs, according to mysticism, is saying that those who are righteous with their productive organ are the foundation of the world and can create or change the will of God. So I gave you three introductions. One about why it says that the river, the, the sea, the sea of reeds returned to its strength and that really means to its condition it made with God. I shared with you the Devar Torah about saying that the righteous are performers of the will of God and not the word of God. And then I shared with you the third teaching introduction of the Baal Shem Tov about Rapinkas ben Yair and his splitting the river because it was in his way to go do a mitzvah. Now, these three introductions were delivered as one Torah teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, 
which he delivered in three different sections at three different occasions. Here is the story behind this as told in the Rebbe's book called Hayom Yom, and I'm going to quote to you. On the Shabbat of the portion of Beshalach in 5529, which is equivalent to 1769, when the Alter Rebbe Rabshneir Zaman of Liadi was in Mizrich by his teacher, the Magid, so he called him and told him the following, that in the year 5716, which coincides with the year 1753, the Baal Shem Tov, who was the teacher of Rabdov Ber, said a discourse on the verse and the Resi returned at dawn to its strength. Now in the year 5521, a couple of years later in 1761, one year after the passing of the Baal Shem Tov, the soul of the Baal Shem Tov was by me, says the Magid, the teacher of the Alter Rebbe to the Alter Rebbe, and said the discourse again and added explanation upon the concept of the performance of the will of God. And today, in 5729 and 1769, the soul of my teacher, the Baal Shem Tov, was by me and repeated the teaching. And then the Magid, Rabdo Ber, said the discourse before the Alter Rebbe, Rav Shnezam and added explanation upon the concept of the Talmudic story of the Gnai River. So there you go. You see here that this big teaching in three parts was actually delivered in three different times in 1769, in 1753, and then, I'm sorry, in 1753, and then in 1761, and then in 1769. We're going to see soon the great insight in what the three stages of this one to teaching, discourse, each bring. Okay, one last introduction. King Solomon in the Book of Songs says, states, those who sit in gardens, friends, listen to your voices, let me hear. Now, Rashi, the classic commentator of Shlomo Yitzchaki explains that this verse is the Holy One, blessed be he, saying to the Jewish people, and he's saying to them, and the Jewish people are scattered in exile, they're pasturing in the gardens of others, and they sit in synagogues and study halls nevertheless. So friends, listen to our voices, ministering angels, which are our friends, pay attention and come to listen to our voices in the synagogues and in the study halls. That's the way Rashi explains this verse. Now, Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak of Lubavitch, in his discourse on the verse in, in 1950, he adds on that not only the ministering angels come to pay attention and to hear our voices of prayer and Torah study, but as our sages state, I and my entourage come to hear your voices. In other words, not just the angels, the ministering angels, but God himself comes to hear and to listen to our voices of prayer and Torah study. Now the question is that King Solomon specifically says beganim. Beganim means in the gardens in exile. Now why is it specifically that when we are in exile and we are in the synagogues and study halls that God comes to hear our Torah study? Why? Why isn't it in the times of the Holy Temple that God came to listen? Why specifically when we are in exile? And in what state of exile? Let's understand. We are in the state of exile that we refer to the exile as a garden. Now, garden is a place of pleasure. How could we refer to exile as a garden, a place of pleasure? 
Thus the verse in Deuteronomy says, Haster, aster, hide, I will hide, double hide. What does it mean? It means it will be such a deep state of exile that we will sit in darkness and not even realize that it is darkness. Rather, we will refer to it as a garden. And in this state of darkness, double darkness, it is specifically here that God and his entourage of ministering angels come to the synagogues, come to the study halls to hear our Torah study and prayers. Why? Now with all these introductions, let us begin the lecture. So as you know, I always start off the lecture with listing which mystical concepts we're going to explore and then explore them and then wrap it up with the modern day issue. So here is what the mystical concepts of this lecture is. Number one, understanding the condition that God made with the universe. Number two, part one, two, and three, the righteous, the returning, and everyone. Now the third, the third concept, the eternal effect of the splitting of the sea of reeds, and then lastly, in the darkness of gardens. And let the amazement of Hasidus begin. Okay, in order to understand the condition that God made with the universe at the time when God created the universe, and in order to understand what it means that if the universe does not fulfill God's condition, that it will be converted to naught and nothingness as before the six days of creation. That's a quote. Converted to naught and nothingness as before the six days of creation. We will need to first explore the secret of the existence of the universe. Now the Baal Shem Tov extrapolates the secret of existence of the universe from a verse in Psalms in chapter 119, verse 89. And it says, Eternally your words are established in heaven. And the Baal Shem Tov explains that what words are always established in heaven? And he says it's the words in the six days of creation and the verse of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 6. Let there be a firmament. Let there be a sky. This utterance of God, the letters of this utterance of God, is what brings into existence the sky from ex nihilo, from, from nothing to something. Now, this, what the Baal Shem Tov is saying is that creation was not just a one-time event. Hashem uttered the words, let there be a firmament, a sky, and through this, there was a sky that will always exist. No. The Baal Shem Tov is saying that King David in his Psalms tells us, Le'olam, eternally, forever, those words, Yehidokia, let there be a sky, must continue to exist and continue to bring the sky from ex nihilo. And the same thing is concerning every single creation. When God said, let there be light, yehi or, those six letters of those two words, yehi or, those six letters, those two words, the utterance of God must continuously be uttered so that light exists. And the moment that the letters of God's utterances cease to exist, are pulled back, the creation is back into naught and nothingness just as before the six days of creation as it never existed. That is what the Baal Shem Tov is telling us upon the verse. Now we understand 
what it means that God made a condition in the very creation of the universe. Specifically here, we're talking about the sea. When God said that there will be a sea, in that very existence and utterance, God made a condition that when it will come a time when the Jews will be on their way to receive the Torah from Mount Sinai and you will be in their way, you will split for them so that they can continue on to the way to Mount Sinai to receive the Torah. Now, the question is that if this, the sea does not fulfill its commitment, we said that God won't destroy it now. God will pull back the letters which actually bring the sea into existence and thus it will revert to the nothingness that was before God created the sea. Now the question here is, okay, so just that you know, the splitting of the sea happened in the year 2448 to creation. Now if the sea would not have split, so we now know that God would have pulled back the words that bring the sea into existence, and the sea would revert to naught as before the six days of creation. But you can't deny the fact that the sea was there for 2,448 years. How can you say that God's going to make it that it will never have existed? And thus, to understand this, we're going to understand an interesting law in concerning the red cow, the red heifer. The book, the five books of Moses in the, in the Chumash, the Bamidbar, in the book of, the, of Numbers, it goes ahead and tells us the laws of how if someone's impure, you take a red heifer, a red cow, completely red, not even two black hairs, and what you do with it. Now, I want to just read to you what the verse says. The verse says, and this is verse 17, chapter 19 in the book of Numbers. The ashes of the burnt purification offering, it shall be placed in a vessel filled with living waters. Now our sages want to know, what does it mean, mayim chayim, living waters? There's dead waters, there's living waters. Waters, does it live or die? And therefore our sages extrapolate from here a law in Mishnayot, in Para, chapter 8, Mishnah 9. And it says as following. And I'm going to read, quote it to you. The following are waters that disappoint. Those that dry up seas even once in a seven-year cycle. So if it dries up even once in seven years, this body of water is not called living water. Now I want to share with you how Rabbi Sholem Dovber of Lubavitch explains this. He explains the Mishnah. That even though at this moment when we place the, ad, the water into the cup and the ashes into the water, the water does exist. In this moment it does exist. But the fact that it will cease to exist within seven years tells me that even now it is not a living existence. Thus from a Torah perspective, something that ceases to exist it never truly existed. For that which truly exists never ceases to exist. Thus, even though it will cease to exist later, that already tells me that even now it doesn't truly exist. Now we understand what it means when we say that if the Sea of Reeds would not keep its condition at the moment of creation, which is at the very DNA of its existence, within the utterance that God uses to bring this sea into existence, 
and God removes those letters, thus the outcome is that because it will cease to exist, thus we now know that even when it does exist, it doesn't truly exist. Thus we are being taught that if the universe does not keep its condition that God placed in it to not get in the way of a Jew fulfilling Torah and mitzvot, it will be revert to naught in a way that will, it will have never existed in the first place. Now, let's go on to the second concept. Now that we understand the depths of the condition and how it's in the DNA of existence, not, not just from now and future on, but from its very birth of existence, now let's move on to the three different portions of the Baal Shem Tov's um, Devar Torah discourse as it was related, as it was given over in three different sections. Now, as I quoted earlier, these teachings were delivered in three parts in the year 55516, which coincides with 1756, and in the year 5521, which coincides in the, with the year 1761. So part one and part two was given from the Baal Shem Tov to Rabbi Dov Ber of Mazrich, making it a teaching of general Hasidus. Baal Shem Tov founded the general Hasidus. Then, after which, in the year 5529, which is 1769, part three was delivered from Rabbi Dov Ber of Mazrich to Rabbi Shneir Zaman of Liadi, the founder of Chabad, which now makes this specifically a Chabad form of teaching. We need to understand what that means. So let us see what is developing from part one to part two to part three from this teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. Let's go back to the first teaching. The original teaching speaks of Moses and the splitting of the series. This teaching speaks of the power of a tzaddik, a righteous man, a saintly man, Moses. And it was on the way of the Jewish people to receive the Torah from God at Mount Sinai. So this is talking about the righteous, the non-sinners. The second teaching speaks of those who change the will of God, and that it causes a nachat, a great joy and a great pleasure for God, as the metaphor of the son who disproves his father's Torah teaching. Now this speaks of not the righteous, but the Baal Teshuvah, the repented, the returning. Why so? Maimonides states, Rambam states in the Laws of Teshuvah, chapter 7, law 7. And he says his following concerning the person who sinned and repented. Previously, the transgressor was separate from God and the Lord of Israel. He would call out to God without being answered. Now, after he, did, he repented, he is clinging to the God. He calls out to God and is answered immediately. He fulfills mitzvot and they are accepted with pleasure, joy. Moreover, God desires them. So we see that this concept of changing and creating a will of God is actually the power of the Baal Teshuvah. The splitting of the sea originally, that was Moses, a righteous man, a tzaddik. The power of Osir Etzono Shel Makom talks about the Baal Teshuvah, the person who sinned and repented. Both of these, part one and part two, does not speak of everyone being capable of changing or creating a new will of God. It speaks of the chosen few, those who are truly righteous, and, and those who reach the ultimate depths of doing Teshuvah repented. However, now comes along part three, 
and concludes specifically with, let me quote it to you again, and all who are called a son to the Holy One, blessed be he, can perform the will of God. And who is this who is called a son to God? He who guards his covenant, his circumcision from deviant sexual acts, which is called in the verse and proverbs, but the righteous of the foundation of the righteous is the foundation of the world. In other words, this part of the teaching, as long as one refrains from forbidden sexual acts, which is possible for everyone, this is not just the righteous and the Baal Teshuvah. He is called a son of the Holy One, blessed be he, and he can perform, which means create and change the will of God. Thus, the first two teachings that the Baal Shem Tov revealed to the Magid, those talk about specific chosen individuals, those who can reach the level of righteousness and saintliness through their prayers and Torah, they can create miracles. And then it talks about those who can do Teshuvah, who can do the ultimate depths of repentance to the point where they are now a great joy and they are a great happiness and a great pleasure to God, those can also change the will of God. However, the third teaching talks about just those who can refrain from, the, from forbidden sexual acts, which this is possible for everyone. Thus, for such a person, he too can change the will of God, as is in the story of Rapinkas Ben Yorir with the river Genai, Genai River. Thus, we see that the, the third the teaching, which is when it becomes a Chabad teaching, going over to Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, the founder of Chabad. Now, what is Chabad all about? Chabad, the Altarebbe, Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, it was all about the all-inclusivity of the mystical teachings and the power of Hasidus becoming accessible to everyone. Thus, when the teaching is being given to the founder of Chabad, it focuses specifically on how it is accessible to everyone. As long as, as a Jew is determined to overcome every obstacle to succeed in doing a mitzvah, then the very existential condition with each creation of the universe is to help him. Even when we are talking of a captive because of his previous mistakes, who needs to be redeemed for and ransomed by Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoyer. We're not talking about a righteous person. We're talking about someone who is a captive, metaphorically meaning that he sinned. Even for such a fallen soul, the Ganai River splits. And even for those who just accompany Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoyer on the journey to perform the mitzvah, the river splits. Thus, once it becomes a Chabad teaching, the focus is that it now must be all-inclusive. It needs to be accessible and available for everyone. Now, there's one more emphasis I want to make on the story of the splitting of the Sea of Reeds. Now, it's, I'm sorry, on the teaching the Baal Shem Tov about the splitting of the Sea of Reeds and the splitting of the river, the Ganai River. The Baal Shem Tov says about the splitting of the Ganai River that it says in the Talmud, he says the following, it is connected to what Moses did with the Sea of Reeds. Now, why this emphasis? Now, I want to explain the question. The question is that we just explained that God made a condition in creation, in all creations, seas and rivers, any, any situation and any creation has at its very genetic level the condition that God made that you will not interfere, you will not get in the way of a Jew 
servicing God, doing God's will. Thus, if this be the case, then why does we have to connect the story of the Ganai River splitting for Apinkas ben Yoyer on his way to redeem someone with ransom who was taken captive? Why did they have to connect that with Moses and the splitting of the sea? It doesn't make a difference if you're Moses. It doesn't make a difference if it's the splitting of the sea on the way to the Torah, receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai, or it's Apinkas ben Yoyer on the way to do a mitzvah of Pidyon Shvuim, redeeming someone who was taken captive. So why does the Baal Shem Tov emphasize that, no, this is connected to that. As if any time that a Jew makes sure that the world does not interfere with his serving God, it is all because of its connection to what Moses did with the splitting of the sea. Now the answer is as follows. Our sages tell us that the exile of Egypt is the source of all exiles, and thus the redemption, the exodus from Egypt, is the is the opening and at source the power of every single exodus and redemption that will ever take place now the question is what what does this mean so i'll tell you that our sages say it's a medrash that our sages say were we to have merited at the time of the splitting of the sea that would have been the final redemption and Mashiach would have come and we have never been in exile again. Thus, what are we saying here? That when Moses told the sea that the sea has to split, so the Jews are on the way to receive the Torah at Mount Sinai and you can't get in our way. The sea actually responded. Our sages tell us that the sea responded to Moses and say, whoa, 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 Moses, hold on a second. We were created on the third day of creation. In Genesis, it says that on the third day of creation, God created all the seas and the oceans and the water gatherings. You, the human being, were only created on the sixth day. What do you mean you're telling me that I have to split for you? And nevertheless, because it was a condition that God made, le'etano, which means the word t'nai, which means the word condition, that creation will not interfere and not get in the way of a Jew doing Torah mitzvot, the sea had to split from Moses and the Jewish people as they marched on to Mount Sinai to receive the Torah. Thus, this concept that Moses did was not just the opening of the exodus for us to receive the Torah. Rather, it is an eternal exodus. And every single day since then, until Mashiach comes, we are in the process of one marching to exodus. And thus Moses split the sea not only for the year 2448 when the Jews went to get the Torah, but Moses split the sea and thus activated the condition in all of creation, in all of the universe, in every creation within the universe, that it will not get in the way. Nay, it will even help a Jew to perform his mitzvah and study Torah and to serve God. This is what the teaching is, that Moses broke it for once and forever, bringing forth that condition that all of creation know, no matter what its nature is, it cannot interfere and must help out a Jew to do a good deed to serve God. And now, let us go to the final concept. 
Why is it that specifically in the darkness and the double darkness of exile that God and the angels leave heaven and come to the synagogues and the study halls to hear the way each and every Jew in exile is praying and is studying Torah? Now, we have to understand why it's specifically in exile. So, the answer is, based on what we just said, that in exile, it is the ultimate experience, it seems to be, that the universe has totally turned against us and against our service to God. Thus, we can say, well, well God, what do you want from me? Your creation, your entire universe has turned against us and is fighting us from being the chosen people, chosen to study your Torah and to do mitzvot and to be a light unto the nations. They are fighting against us. Every single aspect of the universe today is fighting against us being Torah Jews and mitzvot Jews. And nevertheless, in this state of exile, of darkness, we find our way into the shul, the synagogue. We find our way into the Torah study hall. And we pray and we study Torah. Thus, God says, I am coming to hear. For you are activating the ultimate experience of the condition that God made with the universe. That it will not, even when it seems that it is, it will not interfere with a Jew studying Torah, doing mitzvahs, doing the good deeds, and serving God. Additionally, I want to share with you something that our sages say. It's in the Tractic Talmud Megillah, page 29, side A. And it teaches us as follows, and I quote, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai says, Come and see how beloved the Jewish people are before the Holy One, blessed be He. As every place they were exiled, the Divine Presence went with them. They were exiled to Egypt, and the Divine Presence went with them. And the Talmud brings a verse. They were exiled to Babylonia, and the Divine Presence went with them. And the Talmud brings a verse to prove it. So too, when in the future they will be redeemed, the Divine Presence will be with them. As it is stated, a verse from Deuteronomy, Then the Lord your God will return with your captivity. It does not state he will bring back, he will cause the Jewish people to return. But rather it says he will return, which teaches that the Holy One, blessed be he, will return together with them from among the various exiles. That is the Talmud in Megillah. Now I want to share with you what our sages tell us in the Talmud in Tractic Brachot, page 8, side A. It says, It is written, in Psalms chapter 55, verse 19, Pada b'shalom nafshi, he has redeemed my soul in peace, so that none came upon me, for there were many with me. This is the verse. Says Rabbi Nathan, interprets this not as David speaking, not as King David speaking about himself, but as God speaking to Israel. And what does that mean? The Holy One, blessed be he, says, anyone who engages in Torah study, and in acts of kindness, and praise with the congregation, I ascribe to him as if he redeemed me, God, and my children from among the nations of the world. Thus, now we understand that it is specifically in the gardens of darkness of exile, when God is with us in exile, 
that God and his entourage come to listen to the prayers and Torah study of the Jewish people through which God himself is redeemed from exile. Pada b'shalom nafshi. In closing, in peace at last. In closing, let us return to our modern day issue of being at peace with the universe. What we have learned here is that it is within the very foundation of the universe that it exists to not interfere and to even help a Jew serve God. Even more so, Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi in Tanya, closing of chapter 9, says that even the evil inclination itself exists only to help the Jewish people and it even prays for the Jewish people to be successful in overcoming temptation and in serving God. Here is what Rabbi Shneer Zalman writes in the book of Tanya. Quote, However, the desire of the animal side, which is derived from the klipa, the husk, the darkness, is the very opposite, and it is for the good of man that he may prevail over her and vanquish her, as in the parable of the harlot in the holy Zohar. Okay, the Alter Rebbe is telling us that there's a metaphor, a parable in the holy Zohar, about a harlot. Let's see what it says. So in the Zohar, volume 2, page 163, side A, it says, and I quote, A king desired to test the moral strength of his, holy, of his only son. He had a most charming and clever woman brought before him, explaining to her the purpose of the test. He ordered her to exhort every effort to seduce the crown prince. For the test to be valid, the supposed harlot had to use all her chime and guile without betraying her mission in the slightest way. Any imperfection on her part would mean disobedience and the failure of her mission. However, while she uses all her seductive powers, she inwardly desires that the prince should not succumb to them. Thus, the king is God, the prince is the Jew, and the harlot is the Yetzehara, the evil inclination. So the evil inclination is a loyal subject of God. And he knows that the only reason why he's tempting the Jew is because God wants to bring out the inner strength of the Jew to overcome temptation. Thus, ultimately, as the evil inclination is tempting us, it is praying that we fulfill the true reason of its existence and get stronger and overcome temptation. Now, Amuna is having faith in the oneness of God, that there is nothing, even the evil inclination, that fights against God. We must train our minds to see that everything is praying and guiding for us to serve God. With this will come our being at peace with the universe and with God who created the universe. Thank you.